Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. We're in a series called Original Grace, looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And I do remember back when I first met with Scott in the summer, we were trying to plan this together, and he asked which topics I wanted to pick, and uh, I said, the fall and the flood. And he looked at me and he said, really? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> I was like, yeah. I'm, and I don't know if it's just a youth pastor thing. I don't know if we're all just super overconfident because we're young. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But I, I picked the two and, and I, I'm stuck with them. But um, <laughs> I'll say that I, I am, I'm really, I've really grown to appreciate what God has revealed to me in these last few weeks of study, both in Genesis chapter 3 and in this one. So although there's a weightiness to it that we're going to feel this morning, I've come to really appreciate this text beyond just a Sunday school story, right, about Noah's ark. I think most people, even outside of the church, know of this story. Um, But I'll preface today by saying there's a lot of ground for us to cover. It's three chapters. It would take me probably the full 40 minutes to just read the text to you. (laughs) And so I'm going to be jumping around, and uh, hopefully that's all right. Hopefully you can still track along. I'll try to make it make sense. Um, But uh, I do want to say, too, this, this text raises a lot of important questions, Um, A lot of important questions. Um, Just right off the bat, there's historical questions about Noah's Ark. You know, did this event really happen? Did this really take place in history? Um, There's scientific questions, such as, was it a global flood all over the whole world? Was it a local flood, maybe just one area? Or is there even any geological evidence that we can find to prove if this happened or not? Um, And then, I think most importantly, there are ethical questions about this text. Um, Is a God who wipes out all of humanity, except one guy, a God who's deserving of our worship? So there's a lot, and I wish I could answer all of the questions, but again, we don't have time to answer all of them. I'm going to try my best to answer some of them, Um, but more so, I think some of the questions we ask this text are largely a distraction from what the text is trying to tell us, Um, and hopefully you'll see that. Um, There is one question, though, and I just kind of insinuated it in the last question I asked. There's one question that I think this text is trying to answer. And I think it's trying to answer for us and it's trying to answer for the original audience that would have read it. And that question is, is God good? Is God good? Um, And is he good even here? In in this series, in Genesis chapter one, uh, if you were with us, we learned of a God who's always been good, even from the very moments, first moments of creation. In Genesis chapter 2, we learned of a God who is good news for both men and women. In Genesis chapter 3, we were surprised by a God who remains good, even in the worst chapter of the human story. And last week, if you were with us, Genesis chapter 4, we learned of a good God who seeks our good, uh, even when we forget to seek the good of other other people. And now we arrive at Genesis chapter 6, the flood story, and suddenly it's not as easy or as obvious that we're talking about a good God. It kind of sticks out like a sore thumb among all the other texts. Is God good even here, even in the flood? So that's the question 
that we're going to wrestle with this morning. But before we dive in, I don't want this just to be a conversation with the youth pastor. (laughs) I want this to be a conversation we're having with God. So let's pray and let's invite him uh, into this space. Lord, I'm going to keep this simple and straight to the point. Uh, We have a lot to go through today. A big text with a lot of ideas, which simultaneously bring up all kinds of questions. So God, I just help that you would bring, I just ask that you would help bring light to the parts of the text where we need it. Uh, But more importantly, whatever's not answered this morning, God, help us find comfort in the mystery while at the same time being edified by what we do discover. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here we go. (laughs) Before we answer the question, is God good? We do have to address the elephant in the room. Is this flood story history or is it myth? Is the author of Genesis trying to give us a historical account of a real flood that really happened? Or is this story just a myth using rhetorical devices like hyperbole and lots of symbolism? The answer is yes. (laughs) Now let me explain why the answer is yes. Um, First, it is highly likely that a real catastrophic flood took place. Whether it was a global flood or a flood of the known world at the time of the writing of Genesis. There are just too many well-documented myths from cultures across the globe that tell of a flood to just dismiss it as mere stories. Not only that, but the evidence starts piling up when you zoom in on the ancient Near East, which is the cultural river that Israel was immersed in, And these cultures, like Babylon and Assyria, not only share flood stories, but their stories are nearly identical to each other. So some flood event happened, and it has been preserved for us in ancient memory. But the question is, can we reconstruct a historically factual, detailed description of that flood event from the Genesis text? And the answer is, probably not. Probably not. Now, let me tell you why. Most ancient cultures, especially those in the ancient Near East, didn't draw clear lines between myth and history. They just didn't. In other words, they retold significant events from the past with the heavy use of imagery, symbolism, poetic devices, cultural references, So from where today we might preserve history through recording facts and detail, if you read a historical textbook, we put together a chronological timeline, we make sure we're not exaggerating things. Ancient cultures didn't care as much about the precise details as we do today, uh, as much as they did caring about passing on moral or religious lessons and preserving that. Interpretation of events from the past. And we actually make a huge mistake when we expect these ancient writers to follow our rules for what we define as history or doing history. Old Testament biblical scholar John H. Walton, he compares it to flying to rural Africa and immediately after getting off the plane looking for a McDonald's. (laughs) 
<laughs> These ancient writers were just not interested in telling us history the way we do history today. But I do want to make clear that this no way, in no way discredits or undermines divine authority. It doesn't. As Christians, we believe in divine inspiration. We believe a divine author was working through the human authors of Scripture. So God doesn't override, like in some other religious ideas about scriptures or uh, ancient texts, uh, God doesn't override the folks who are writing scripture, which means the human authors wrote in ways that would have made sense to the audience of the day. John H. Walton, he puts it this way. He says, God gives them revelation that transcends their culture, their time and place, but he speaks to them through their culture, through a way that makes sense to them. In other words, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. So what this means is, as Christians, we don't have to get all caught up in the debates about whether the flood is historical or whether it's a myth. In fact, I think the most or the best way to read the flood account is the way ancient historian John Dixon describes it. He says it's a song about a real event. And it's also a song among other songs that existed at the time. Being God's revelation, the Genesis song is being told in conversation with all these other songs that existed at the time about this event, a flood event. And what Genesis is doing is it's pointing out errors in these other cultures' ideas about the gods, about human beings, and especially on why the flood happened, why the flood happened. One of these notable flood stories, uh, or songs, is from Babylon and Assyria, and it's called the Epic of Gilgamesh. I'll just really briefly run through the story with you. Uh, it's a story of how human beings became too noisy, too noisy to the dogs, to the gods. <laughs> and uh, they decide human beings are too noisy, there's too many of them, so we're going to destroy them. We're going to wipe them off the, the planet. Uh, but one god decides to warn his favorite human. It's kind of like pets, like he's like a favorite human. So he's gonna warn this favorite human, tell him to build a boat to save himself and his family. And after the floods recede, the man then goes and makes a sacrifice. And then the gods, many gods, swarm around his sacrifice like flies and gift that human being with immortality. Lots of parallels between the Genesis story and the epic of Gilgamesh. Some have even argued that Genesis 6 is just a copy of these other stories like the epic of Gilgamesh. But as much as they share similarities, it's the differences in these stories that set Genesis apart as radical and utterly unique. Those are not my words. These are Biblical commentators' words. Radical and utterly unique when you compare it to the other stories. The differences are so unique that Old Testament scholar John Walton points out that no Mesopotamian text has yet provided what could have been the base text of the biblical narrative. Where all the other songs share things amongst each other, copy each other, the biblical story of the flood is radical and unique in its differences.
which means it's because of these differences that we can affirm that this is God's revelation to us. In comparison to the other flood narratives, this Genesis story alone tells us what it does about who God is, why the flood happened, and how we are supposed to relate to our creator. Which is why I wanna invite us, as we dive into the text, to set aside the questions that we may have about history, about science, and just lend our ear to what the text is trying to say. So the first thing the text reveals to us, which again is utterly unique to Genesis, I can't stress that enough, is why the flood happened, why it happened. So let's begin in Genesis chapter six, verse five. It says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Let's pause there. Since Cain and Abel, which we looked at last week, it has been seven generations, okay, seven generations. Seven being a number in Hebrew that represents fullness and perfection. But in this case, it's wickedness that has now reached its fullness and perfection. It's a perfection of imperfection. And humans have responded to God's command. They have fulfilled God's command to be fruitful and to multiply but what they've multiplied is evil. And now the world and human beings are only evil all the time. We're gonna jump back for a second to Genesis chapter three. We saw that by listening to the serpent, uh, by listening to the serpent who made Eve question God's goodness, her and Adam chose to claim for themselves the ability to define what's good and true apart from God and his authority. Now, you can go back and you can watch that sermon uh, where we covered that first sin in detail, but I'll just put up this, one of the slides from that sermon. We, write, we might remember that the three lies of the serpent were these. One, that boundaries and limits are threats to freedom. Second, that we as human beings know best collectively and individually. And third, what feels good and right is good and right. Now, in Genesis chapter six, those lies have become reality. When boundaries are ignored and human beings decide their own destiny, chaos and violence ensue. This helps explain the mysterious first verses uh, at the start of Genesis six that I conveniently didn't start there, <laughs> where it says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. And by doing this, they gave birth to the notorious Nephilim. Now, there are a whole whack load of explanations for who these sons of God are. They could be kings, they could be the descendants of the, of the Seth line, but most likely, they are fallen spiritual beings. Whatever the case may be, though, it's obvious that in all of those circumstances, boundaries have been crossed. 
Boundaries have been crossed. And the text even goes so far to use the same words to describe taking human women as wives. The same words that we see in Genesis chapter 3. Eve saw, desired, and took the forbidden fruit. The sons of God, and this is very, very explicit in the Hebrew, saw, desired, and took human wives. So this helps explain why God has come to the point where he's regretted having, uh, having made human beings. And here's where we see the very first, remember I said the, the differences between Genesis and all the other flood accounts in the ancient years. Genesis has some radical differences. This is the first major difference that we see. God is deeply grieved by the state of humanity and the world. In the other stories, the gods are annoyed and offended. Humans have overpopulated and they're making too much noise. There's no sense that these gods care about human beings at all. In fact, we get the sense that it's the opposite. They see these human beings, us, as a nuisance, an obstacle to what they want. But in Genesis, we see something radically different. We see a God who is just, because the problem's not overpopulation, it's wickedness, and we see a God who grieves. In other words, God has made himself so intimately tied to his children that he is personally and deeply wounded by what humans have made of themselves. His heart breaks more than ours. We only know the suffering we know. God knows millennia of suffering, every individual's suffering that has ever taken place, that is taking place. And he cares. And nothing, nothing is missed by him. He sees it. You could go so far to say he sees you. Despite us being a part of the problem, our own hearts being sinful, God still sees us and he still cares. He hears and sees you parents out there who are just trying to do their best at raising their kids. He sees those who are working hard to pay the bills and are feeling the crushing pressure of meeting ends meet. He sees students who are just holding on for dear life as they go through the semester, hoping to get to Christmas. Any and all who are dealing with deep, physical, spiritual, or emotional pain, God sees, he hears, he knows, he feels. So God, who hears every cry, who knows every tear, who is grieving what has become of his once beautiful world and his beautiful creatures, he chooses to do something. He chooses to act justly. Verse 11 continues. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. 
and I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark. He goes on to describe what the ark's going to look like. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. This is usually where, or the part of the text where a lot of us get uncomfortable. We get that the world is evil, but this just seems a little tense, tense, even for a God who has the right to do this. It doesn't sit well with us, but it actually helps if we understand the nature of God's judgment and what's taking place in this text. It says that human beings have become corrupt. That's the word that the Hebrew uses. In Hebrew, though, again, we miss a lot when we translate into English, just simply because we don't have enough English words. In Hebrew, this is obvious. The word corrupt can also be translated as ruin, decay, or destroy. Destroy. Now look at verse 13 again, where God says, I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. I don't know if you see it, but he's using the, same, it's using the same word there. Virtually, what God is saying is, if ruin is what humans want, then ruin is what they're going to get. In other words, God's not unfairly punishing them. He's only letting them reap what they've already sowed. The world is already completely corrupt. It can't get any more corrupt. All God is doing is stepping back and letting that corruption catch up to them. You see this more obviously in verse 17, where God says, I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens and every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. And then Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, which says how God floods the world. He says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th, 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. Now, I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 1 for a second. And one of the very first acts of creation that God ever did while hovering over the waters was to create a vault that separates the waters of heaven and the waters below. That's what he does. And this is primarily the way that the ancients viewed the structure of the universe. You can picture it kind of like a dome. Oh, great, the picture's up there. Kind of like a dome. And the vault, this dome, is what is holding back the waters above and the waters below. Now, again, remember, I know there could be so many scientific questions we might have about this, but this is God speaking to an ancient audience through their ancient understanding. This was unanimous among all ancient cultures in the area. This is how they understood the structure of the universe. God's not trying to describe to us a scientific understanding of the universe. There's something deeper going on here. He's using their understanding. So what's being described here in the flood in the words of biblical scholar Gordon Wenham, he says, God is actually undoing his great acts of separation. In Genesis chapter one, we see that God is the one who holds all things together, and that is true today. He is what holds the universe in existence at every moment of every day. 
He holds back chaos and disorder. He's put order into the world, the logos. But humans have chosen. They don't want anything to do with him. And so here in Genesis chapter six, he is simply removing his hand. And that's just it. The flood is what happens when God is totally removed from the picture. I don't know about you, but it helps me to just think of that bubble popping. (laughs) That's what's happening in Genesis. The waters above and the waters below, they come from both directions. Now, Daryl Johnson explains it this way. He says, creation is allowed to sink into chaos. Humanity is given the full implications of our desires. We wanted no boundaries, and that is what we get. And you could add... It's also what we deserve. This is largely how God's judgment works throughout Scripture. Because He loves us, He respects our choices, even when they're anti creation, anti flourishing, anti brother, anti sister, and anti God choices. And it's not because God is evil, but it's actually the opposite. It is because our God is so good that he respects us and he lets us do what we want and live with the consequences. Now, sometimes people will use this text to prove that God is not good. But the truth is we choose or chose the flood. God was there holding things together, but he couldn't do that any longer because of the mess we made. And so he gave humanity over to it. God's not just being good, he's being just. If he continued to put up with the evil and the violence of the world, that would be an unjust God. But God is good, so he sends the flood to put an end to the human project. There's no other way. Or is there? Let's reread Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Starting in verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So the Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the greatest but in the history of the world. (laughs) Seriously, though. (laughs) This one verse is good news, great news, the best news. Before Noah ever obeys a single command from God or proves himself worthy or gives God any reason to favor him, God chooses Noah to be his vessel, his servant, his means to restore hope for all of creation. 
Why does God do this? The answer is grace. Undeserved, unexpected, unmerited grace. Noah was set apart by God from his generation. He was righteous and blameless, not perfect. He simply responded to God's grace with faith. God gave instructions, Noah listened. Over and over it says Noah obeyed. Without a cloud in the sky signaling rain, Noah believed God. When everyone else scoffed at him, the New Testament tells us Noah preached and warned everyone he could. Even when he built the ark, were the other flood stories, and again, another difference, the other flood stories say that the humans each, in each story who build the boat, they build rudders, they build ways of steering the ship, they bring navigators onto the boat so that they can go where they need to go. Noah builds an ark without rudders. If you reconstruct the ark, it is a completely useless boat. All it does is float. <laughs> That's it. That's all it does. No ability to steer. Noah simply trusts in God. Even when the waters recede and Noah pops his head out and he sees that there's dry land out there, he waits 27 days until God commands him to leave the ark. Where everyone else in Noah's day lived independent of God, without a care for him or his boundaries or his purposes, Noah lived in intimate dependence on God. He had faith in his creator. And it's worth saying again, God doesn't wait until Noah proves himself, proves that he's worthy of being saved. Right there in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, before it describes anything else that Noah has ever done to deserve God's grace, it says that God chose Noah. God showed grace first, and then Noah responded with his life. And again, God didn't have to do this. God wasn't forced to do this. The problem would have been solved with the flood. But God chose to preserve at least one man and his family. And it's not just Noah and his family that he preserved. God preserved the animals, ensuring that life would go on that creation would have a future, that God wasn't ready just yet to give up on his creatures. And after God preserved Noah and his family and the animals, God makes a covenant to never flood the earth again. Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. It says, Noah comes out of the ark, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, Taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Verse 22. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest Cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And then immediately after making the covenant, God says in verse 7, 
As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Be fruitful and multiply. It's the exact same commission that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden. And I don't know if you've picked up on this, but God is essentially renewing creation here. He's continuing his plans for good despite it being frustrated by human sin. And that frustration on God's part needs to be emphasized. The original plan with Adam and Eve before they had ever decided to do life on their own and all that happened in the garden and having human beings be his image bearers, all of that has been totally derailed by sin. And because the world isn't the same as it once was, and humans are no longer the same as they were originally created, the way that God walks with us has now changed. God has now added new boundaries to the old ones. One having to do with meat, I won't read it for you, but it's there in the text. One having to do with eating meat, and the other on what happens if human life is unjustly taken. Now these are the first laws that we come across in scripture. God knows that because things are broken, and if he's gonna do something to prevent the world from getting to that point of being wholly corrupt, that wholly corrupt state again, then humans are gonna need some guidelines <laughs> to fight back the, the decay and the chaos that is at play. And parents, you do this. In some seasons, you need to walk with your child in a different way. Maybe sometimes they need more direction, maybe less. Maybe sometimes they need more comfort. Maybe other times they need correction. Maybe they need more rules. <laughs> we adjust to the way that our children are. And let it be said that God doesn't have to do this. This is all because of his grace. And again in our text, it says that God makes the covenant even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. This is the case the entire time, from the very beginning of the flood story. Even when God is giving humans over to their own destruction, electing to send the flood, he's already at work making provisions to preserve human beings, to continue to show grace, and to continue to work towards the good of his world and his children. Nothing has changed in God, even though everything has changed for humanity. He's still pursuing our good and the good of the world. And he does the same things in our lives, not just Genesis chapter six. Even though we falter and we give in to the serpent's lies and we try to live independent of God at times, God continues to show us grace for our own good and for the good of the world. And he's done so in the person of Jesus Christ, who died for our sin, who now lives in us, who's at work not to give up on us, God sent him to renew us, to heal us, to restore us, to cleanse the old so that the new might emerge. The whole story of the flood is a type of resurrection. It's the doing away of the old so something else, newer, better might emerge. Friends, in a text that often makes us question if God is good, Genesis 6 actually reveals to us a God who is better than good. Genesis 6 reveals to us a God who faithfully finds ways 
to show his goodness and his grace. During the flood, the text tells us in chapter 8, verse 1, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. And then verse 1 of chapter 8, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. It's a little funny because it seems to suggest that God can forget. <laughs> that God's like, oh yeah, Noah, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's not what's happening. Again, in the English translation, we lose a lot of the meaning in the Hebrew. But God isn't like us or the gods of the ancient world, for that matter, who sometimes forget about things. The Hebrew word for forget actually means to act on a previous promise. <laughs> so he's not forgetting. He's just being faithful in this text. He remembers Noah. He keeps keeps his word because he's faithful. And when God makes a covenant with Noah, he puts a bow in the sky, a rainbow, a symbol. Bows in the ancient world were symbols for war and hostility. And he uses it as a symbol for peace instead, a reminder that he is good and that he remembers and that he will always faithfully follow through. I want to ask us, if God remembers us, will we remember him? Ever since the fall and the entrance of sin into the world, God has continually been proving himself to be a faithful and good God to us, reminding us that his boundaries are not threats to freedom, but are actually good for us and for the world, warning us that when humans attempt to be God's, controlling our own destiny, deciding for ourselves what is good and true. We only succeed at ruining ourselves and the world. We only succeed at becoming less human. And God has gone great lengths throughout history to make covenants, not just the one with Noah, but a series of covenants, with the final one being the covenant he made through Christ who on the night before he died as a sacrifice for our sins, lifted the cup and bread and said to us, remember, remember. If God remembers us, will we remember him? I'm not saying we have to be perfect. That's not the gospel. I'm saying that even when the world crumbles, even when the walls cave in, and things seem hopeless, and evil has its way, will we remember? Will we remember that Christ has overcome the world, that God hears your every cry, that all the promises in Christ are yes and amen? I imagine Noah sitting in the ark, damp, cold, probably overwhelmed by the stench, <laughs> the boat rocking violently without him having any ability to steer. What motivated Noah to stick it through? It was God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's grace. Let me end with a passage from Isaiah 54, where God reminds us of his covenant love. This was true to Noah, this is true to Israel, who Isaiah is writing to at the time, and this is true to us today. It says this. This is God speaking. To me, this is like the days of Noah, 
when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. Says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are sorry for for forgetting, ignoring, at times avoiding you. Thank you for your grace, for your continual pursuit of us, for never giving up on a people and a world that has walked away from you. We stand in awe of your goodness. So help us remember you. Remember your faithfulness. Even when chaos threatens or our hearts grow weary, even when we stray from your path or get caught up in things that threaten to steal our attention and worship away from you, And especially when it's hard. When following you, Jesus, means rejection, humiliation, self-denial. Help us remain steady in trust, in faith. And finally, God, fill us with gladness, adoration, worship. Open the floodgates of our hearts to be overwhelmed by how awesome and true and beautiful you are. How good you are and how good you have always been. We thank you, God, for your covenant faithfulness and your love for us. And we pray this all in your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen.